BBC Radio 5 Live. Hello. Welcome along to this week's podcast with myself, Edith Bowman. Hello, and Clarice Lockery. I'm also here. <laughs> we Can I just say one thing I realised about this week's show, which you will, I think, be aware of once you get to the end of listening to it. There's a lot of films with great female performances in this week, which is something I wanted to yeah. quickly mention. Gemma Arterton being a highlight and Evangeline Lilly um, as well. But there's mm. two young girls in The Apparition and also um Sicilian ghost story that talents i'm excited to see what they do next and casey clemens yeah was of course great. yeah and hearts beat loud but anyway i have an email before we get into this week's show if that's okay um dear wondrous women witterers oh i like that the good lady minister her indoors and i went to see two distinctly different films this week leave no trace admission impossible fallout both were engaging and worthwhile works of entertainment in their own rights but i write about the one that will likely not make its way into this week's top 10 leave no trace. While MIF was the epitome of a summer blockbuster, loud, filled with wall-to-wall action and thrilling, LNT was the anti-blockbuster, quiet, subdued and restrained. But wow, did it pack an emotional punch. We find the experience to be subtly powerful, delicately mesmerising and passionately intense. From the opening scene to the closing frame, we were captured by the cinematic beauty of the visual storytelling, the powerful performances of the two leading actors and the epic personal journey that each was undertaking. The summer's blockbusters, true to form, will likely quickly fade from our collective memories but leave no trace, I believe, will remain in our souls to beautifully haunt us and remind us of the beauty and fragility of life and love. This will surely linger as one of the best films of 2018, if not of the century thus far. Tinkety-tonk, Mark Gorman. Wow, I want to cry after reading that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it is such, such a beautiful film, Leave No Trace. Oh, there we go. I think, if nothing else, that might have encouraged quite a few of you to hopefully go and see the film, seek it out. Right, here is this week's show. Welcome to the show. It's Clarice and Edith. Yes, we are back again and for Mark and Simon and we're with you until four o'clock this afternoon um, with the pretty ram jam-packed show again. Yeah. 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 And again, a slightly odd mixture of films, but... It feels like there's a kind of, there's a big sort of adult blockbuster, a kids, big kids movie, and then a sort of jumble stuff. of stuff. That was last stuff. week. That's this week again. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but, 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 you know, good stuff. Yeah, still good stuff to talk about. Okay. Like? <laughs> like we've got, well, we've got Airman and the Wasp is the big blockbuster. Yeah. The kids' movie is Teen Titans Go to the movies. Then the stuff is Damascus Cover, The Escape, Sicilian Ghost Story, The Apparition, and Hearts Beat Loud. I feel bad kind of clumping all under stuff. Because there's yeah. some really incredible things to talk about in there. So apologies for clumping that all under stuff. We've also got two special guests on the show, Evangeline Lilly and Paul Rudd, talking about Ant-Man and the Wasp. We'll hear from them after 2.30. And if you want to join in with the show, please do get in touch with us in all the usual ways. You can do that on email, which is mail at bbc.co.uk, or you can text us 85058, and you'll also find us on Facebook and on Twitter. We are at Wittertainment. Uh, right, before we crack into the top 10, we've got a couple of really nice emails. Thank you as well for everybody who's sent in emails so far. There's a really great mix of stuff this week. Uh, this one comes from Catherine in Swansea. Uh, I recently went to see Mamma Mia 2 with three female relatives my mother and two aunts, the eldest of whom is Auntie Glenis. 
Old people's names starting with G is a great thing. My nana was Gladys. There's a lot of G's Ooh. for old ladies. She's 87 is Auntie Glennis. Uh, as we strolled to our local Odeon, I asked her when she last visited the cinema. She paused, closed her eyes momentarily, then exclaimed loudly, Zulu! As we laughed, I quickly googled its release date, 1966. Surely not, I said. You haven't been in the pictures in 52 years. She suddenly stopped walking and said, no, wait, Roger Rabbit. So that's a visit roughly every 30 years. So I was wondering if there's fellow listeners who have tales of, oh, she was wondering if fellow listeners have tales of longer gaps in cinematic experiences. That, the selection as well, Zulu, Roger Rabbit, Mamma Mia. Mia, here we go. Not even the first, first Mamma Mia. Yeah. Straight in on number two. <laughs> Catherine from Swansea, thank you for that. Uh, and please do feel like if you want to answer Catherine's question, if any listeners have tales of longer gaps in cinematic experience. Uh, I love this. Dear Ebo and CeeLo or Edibo and Clary Lowe. Thank oh, you. I love how we're getting personalised. Get that, actually. What, Clary so, Lowe? Uh, no, CeeLo. CeeLo or okay. CeeLo. CeeLo. Oh, nice. I think it's people don't know how to make nicknames out of my name. so they Or say Lochry. Yeah, or they just make <laughs> weird sounds and I go, sure. <laughs> go okay. for it. See you. Uh, pleased to see the permanent hosts are back following Mark and Simon's recent lengthy stint filling in for you. Bless. Regarding the scores on Simon versus Edith films mentioned last week. So this was off the back of tracking Edith last week, which yeah. is the film we talked about. Simon has loved Simon and Simon Keller. Edith is tracking Edith and Edith walks. But you've forgotten Damien the Bowman, No Good Eid, Bowman's Land. This is my favourite one. Eid for Speed, Bowman Holiday, Eid Racer, and the recent Hugh Jackman musical. This is, actually, this is my favourite one. The Greatest Bowman. <laughs> Final scores, 9-2. James... James Padson, I think I love you. Thank you very much for that. that Can we put be... that on the wall for Simon and Mark coming back in a couple of weeks' time, please? That should be the nickname, The Greatest Bowman. The greatest Bowman. Oh, if only I could sing as well. Uh, right, the top ten, which we are kind of stepping out of ever so slightly and starting at number 48. Um, could this be the deepest down the box office numbering we've ever gone? I think it might well be. But that's because someone sent us an email about Iceman um, after your review last week which wasn't particularly complimentary more no. about yeah because of your they were like how do they know that's a story yeah <laughs> it's just a little bit odd that it's trying to pretend that it's very accurate with using the the ration the old extinct language but then also it's completely fictionalized and very uh, revenant e well plot William Golightly in London said did you like the revenant yes do you like the Alps? I love the Alps. <laughs> Do you like your minimal dialogue in untranslated early Raetic dialect? Um, yeah, maybe. Do you like accurate depictions of the effect of a Neolithic diet on one's teeth? Love, love that. <laughs> if so, Iceman is the film for you. Two thumbs up from this reviewer. Oh, I didn't notice the teeth. <laughs> 
that's what it was. If only you'd noticed. If only I'd have you'd have so accurate. <laughs> In the same way, anyone who's seen the killers at a festival this summer can't not notice Brandon Flowers' new teeth. It's like having another spotlight on stage. They are oh. an amazing feat. Oh, wow. Yeah, just watch that out if you are going to fest. So take a pair of sunglasses. Uh, right, from 48, let's go to 12. And a film you talked about last week, um, Apostasy. Can you remind people about that if they've not seen it? Yeah, so um, it's a film by an ex-Jehovah's Witness, sort of about the Jehovah's Witness community and particularly about one family where the mother is, is very imposing and controlling over her two daughters and the two daughters react in very different ways. One is very devout, the other isn't so much and that ends up sort of tearing the family apart. So it's very tragic. Yeah, we've had a couple of emails from this. Um, Although I fully respect the views of the filmmakers as well as the the expressed opinion of a former Jehovah's Witness and of Clarice, as a current Jehovah's Witness and member of the Church of Wittetainment, I feel quite qualified to comment and give another side to the review of apostasy. It is a story of one family's experience, therefore cannot speak for all and does not give a true view of life as a Jehovah's Witness. What I do think it does demonstrate extremely well is the effect of a parent who forces religion or cultural tradition on children without space for choice. I was taken a little back at Clarice's use of the words isolated, uh, inscrutable and strange used to describe the organisation as a whole without mentioning any other basis than this film. While this may be true of the family depicted in the film, it is not a clear picture of the happy majority that make up this wonderful worldwide brotherhood. We are not isolated from the real world, but in fact reach out every day to connect with people all around the globe. Liam Garfield from Brighton. Well, I have to say, I think when I was using those words, I was only speaking, I think, as someone on the outside, because as you mentioned, there's not really that much cultural awareness of what Jehovah's Witness is. Like, I really struggle to think of other actually accurate or honest depictions of what the community is like. I feel like most of the time it will be like a punchline, like Donald Glover's character in Community. I remember he was Jehovah's Witness and it was always played for a punchline. So I think that's... Part of what made that film so unique is that it's so rare to Mm. actually see that community depicted on screen. Uh, And another one from Rick, Rick uh, Buchan, who says, Just finished seeing Apostasy, top-notch realistic portrayal of religious conflict within a family unit. Quality performances bring emotional heft to the challenge facing the main characters and their interaction. One of my top films, top five films of the year so far. Brilliant. Great. Thank you very much indeed for that. Right. Let's get into the actual top 10. Uh, Thomas and Friends, Big World, Big Adventure, the movie. The longest title for a film ever, mainly. It's been in the top, it's two weeks it's been in the top 10. This is summer holidays. It is a big adventure. That's what the title says. (laughs) Big adventure. That's all she's saying about it. Yeah. Big adventure. That's it. Done. Now, surprisingly or not surprisingly, back in the top 10, it was released 12 weeks ago, but it's back in the top 10. Sherlock Gnomes. Where did you come from? <laughs> that should be Sherlock yeah. Gnomes. Where did you come from? Which I really had to to think to, to remember my experience of this film. And? And I remember my main takeaway being for a first introduction to the world of Sherlock Holmes for some Had you kids, not seen Nomeo and Juliet? Well, no, for oh, Sherlock right. Holmes particularly, okay. I feel like you will have the very a very incorrect impression of what Sherlock Holmes is. Okay. And it reminded me, I don't think this show ever aired in the UK, but Wishbone and how much better that was at representing literary classics because it was a show about a dog and then the dog would dream his experience of all these classic books and it would be all the Sherlock Holmes stories told accurately, but for kids 
through a dog. So I don't, I'm, this is a, a ramble, but <laughs> that's a, my main takeaway. I just remember thinking, oh, kids will be so confused as to what Sherlock Holmes is if this is the first thing they watch is Sherlock Gnomes. My kids absolutely loved it. We sang along. We had a lot, a lot of fun watching this, I have to say. Yeah. And Ocean's 8, which is still in the top 10 after six weeks. Does that make it a success, do you think? Yes. Make another one, please. <laughs> That's what I was just going to ask you. Yeah. Have they said whether they will or not? I No, I don't think they've said anything, but I think it's still it's pretty likely. The chances are high because also it would be so easy to do another one. They just need to get another big name and boom, you've got a story. Yeah, I hope so. I really hope they do. Uh, if, if you haven't, it's a... It's, I know we talked about this last week because um, someone emailed in about the fact that Mark only ever mentions James Corden when we talk about the film. Um, and we just, by listing those women that are in the film and how much fun they're having, that's kind of what we were trying to get across last week was just, it's a really fun film. And they really get to play with who they are as stars. Like Kate Blanchett is just the epitome of what you imagine Kate Blanchett to be. Yeah. It's perfect. Uh, right then, number seven, First Purge. Which I still haven't seen actually. Tell I think me. it's. I think the Purge series is so interesting because it's really played into the political side of it, and it reaches an absolute peak with the first Purge. It, it finds like the most sort of political source for the entire concept. The one thing I will say is that it pushes those ideas to places that are quite upsetting and quite horrific for what at the end of the day should be a fun Blumhouse movie so Mm -hmm. I think it's yeah they maybe went a little too there are moments that are just quite really brutal to watch and it's quite jarring when a lot of the rest of the film is you know people running around with bats Um, that's number six uh sorry number seven uh number six we have skyscraper Dwayne the Rock Johnson which, I mean, everyone loves Dwayne The Rock Johnson. But my problem with Skyscraper is that it takes so long to get to the Dwayne The Rock Johnsoning of him jumping around and punching things. Yeah, There's this just incredibly lengthy introduction of having to sell you this giant skyscraper hotel that doesn't exist in real life. It makes no... You're like, yes, I would love to stay here, but it doesn't exist. So why does this first half of the movie... What is it doing? Have just on a on a Dwayne tip. Have there been any? Has there been any news of a Moana sequel? Oh. I'd love to see a Moana sequel. I don't think so. I've not heard anything. That's a film that didn't do well at the cinema, but it it's such a great film. Yeah, just a tip for me if you've got kids and you're thinking of something fun to watch. We've had a really nice email about Skyscraper actually from Harry, who says I have just had the delight of watching Skyscraper, the third edition to the Wow. That Wesley dude will never say no to an action movie, will he? Franchise. I would like to start by saying that my friend and I only went to view this because we had no other options, with both of us having seen Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, and Incredibles two, and with Sherlock Gnomes unavailable. Yes, we two 14 year olds were more willing to watch. Sherlock Gnomes in this film I'm happy to say however Skyscraper completely matched my expectations an action movie that fails to follow in the footsteps of predecessors such as Die Hard which instead becomes a nonsensical movie full of coincidences uh, sorry coincidences inconsistencies and unoriginal characters with barely any depth the plot of this film was so predictable that me and my friend both managed to work out what was going to happen in the first 20 minutes including the final action scene itself. 
I doubt I'd watch it again. I'm in shock that a trilogy was originally planned, but it provided a hilarious experience and could just be passed as an intentional parody of Die Hard from Harry Threppleton, age 14. There was a trilogy planned. (laughs) So there would be three different skyscrapers or the same skyscraper three Three times times over? (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, I want to know now. Harry, thank you so much for that brilliant, brilliant review of the film. Thank you so much indeed. Uh, I'd love to know what you thought of Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom and Incredibles 2, please, as well. So do get in touch with us, Harry, if you are listening. Uh, That's number six. Number five, Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom. Kind of wish Harry had sent us one for that as well because we don't have any correspondence. Yeah, I guess everyone Anything else to say about it? I think it's the right choice of director, but I think they should stop making Jurassic Park movies because I don't think it was meant to be a franchise. Okay. It's a very singular, insulated idea of dinosaurs in park, park fails, and there's only so far you can go with that. And the franchise is just really straining for new ideas now. Okay, the flip side of that, and a great choice of director with a franchise that we want to see more and more films being made and has just started filming this week is Star Wars Episode 9. Yes. <laughs> uh, if you are listening to Clarice and I for the first time, then you won't know that we are possibly two of the biggest Star Wars fans in the world. However, my uh, attempt to learn any details about the new film of the Star Wars have not gone as far as Clarice's have. Tell oh. everyone what you asked your dad this week. So my dad is, is a pilot. He's not professional, but um, I did text him immediately asking whether he could fly over Pinewood Studios <laughs> so I could look out of the window and see, I don't know, Daisy Ridley, <laughs> a tiny Daisy Ridley. Um, the answer was no, he's not allowed to because it's too close to Heathrow. That's the only reason. Otherwise, Uh, I would have been there with my camera. JJ Abrams uh, starting this week then. Very excited about that. Uh, Number four, Hotel Transylvania 3, A Monster Vacation. Thank you, Kevin, for your um, correspondence. We took our four and two-year-old to see Hotel Transylvania 3, A Monster Vacation. As with most films, when they take an established setup on holiday, my expectations were strictly well as long as the kids enjoy it. But you know what? It's perfectly watchable. We all chuckled along throughout and as the frenetic slapstick Homer... Uh, by no means a classic, but more than exceeded expectations. And I'm sure we'll watch it as many times as we have the two others. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah, Perfectly Watchable is mm. such a good descriptor. Yeah. Uh, Incredibles 2 is at number three, um, which is just, I think, classic. Yeah. I have to say Incredibles isn't my favourite of the Pixar series but it's it's pixar okay uh number two it's mama mia two um if we've got time later we'll get this correspondence in but number one surprise surprise mission impossible fallout um i'll do the correspondence some of the correspondence first because we've had so much about it dear summer substitute teachers i visited my local multiplex with medium to high expectations for mi full and they were met. It was ram-packed with the dizzying, palm-shredding action set pieces, twisty, turny plot twists and even a few art house touches. I'm pretty sure I saw a bit of last year at Marambad in some of the Paris scenes. Beyond all this, though, I think the movie tells the story of the battle in modern cinema between practical stunts and CGI. In today's film world, CGI has become so good that it's easy to become blasé over action scenes. We assume that the impossible is possible because it's been digitally manipulated. What Fallout does, both on screen and through its promotional interviews, is put Cruz's active involvement front and centre. So we discovered it really is just him jumping between buildings, 
riding motorcycles up the Champs-Élysées and flying jumping out of helicopters. In these scenes, the camera obsessively finds Cruz's face to ram home the reality. This isn't just a vanity piece, though. It's a challenge set by Cruz to other action films. In her review, Clarice suggested that How Can You Top This might be the reason why they don't make another film. I think it's the reason why Cruz might just be tempted. Matt Barber and Exeter, thank you very much indeed for that. That's such a good point. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That that thing between CGI and practical stunts is is really what makes yeah the Mission Impossible movies kind of their own special thing. I went to see it again this week and from watching it a second time, from the first time you're kind of going, oh my God, it's Tom Cruise, how does he do that? I went from that to, oh my God, how are they filming that? You know, in terms, especially those kind of motorbike scenes through the streets of Paris, it's phenomenal. And the halo jump, we yeah. actually had a cameraman also doing the jump with them. Just amazing. Alison Williams, uh, Mishimp, script is absolute tosh. But let's face it, doesn't matter when the action is so good that I only sighed when the woman in front of me started on her kebab. <laughs> wow. Oh, no. uh, dear Edith and Clarice, I went to see Mission Impossible Fallout shortly after your review last Friday and I have to say it far exceeded my expectations. Unlike some of the recent Bond films, it doesn't seem to be suffering from an existentialist crisis. It's unashamedly, it unashamedly delivers great action and implausible plots and the audience is happily carried along with it, suspending all disbelief. I agree pretty much with all that was said about the performance of the cast with the exception of Simon Pegg. Whilst he undoubtedly delivered some passable comedy moments, I can sometimes find his everyman slightly out of his comfort zone character a bit meh, although I much prefer his character to Scotty. My friend and I followed the tip of covering our eyes during the opening credits, although we do wonder whether the bemusement this caused to some of those sitting around us may constitute a new breach of the code. Very much looking forward to Friday's show. John Gleeson in Birmingham, thank you very much indeed for that. One more, just do another one. Um, Dear Delightful Summer Clergy, Saw MI Fallout with my wife a couple of nights ago. Loads of fun. Glamorous foreign capitals, spectacular scenery, twisty twists and Tom Cruise being... Tom Cruise. However, last week you read several emails from members of the congregation who warned about spoiler shots in the opening sequence of the film. No! 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 Those of us from the 1970s corner of the church remember that each television episode of Mission Impossible began with the opening theme music, a shot of a burning fuse and a montage of action clips from the upcoming episode. So I wonder if the sequence is perhaps the filmmakers paying homage to the original. But regardless... Just let it wash over you. It's the beginning of a great summary roller coaster ride. Dave O'Brien, New Brunswick, Canada. I actually covered my husband's eyes this week when we went to the cinema, going, Don't watch it! And he was like, What are you doing? <laughs> oh, God, wait, I want to see this bit. Um, yeah, I mean, we, did, do you want to pick up from just your, your view of it from last week and what your thoughts were? A few people yeah. mentioned some of the stuff you said last week. But can yeah. I say Tom Cruise's Swan Lake? <laughs> yeah, you can. Yes. Because that was an amazing Pretty much <laughs> my overall takeaway. I think I very much agree with what everyone's saying, you know, the quality of the action here mm-hmm. and as well, especially how it's filmed. There is such a visual coherence to what is happening, you know, where everyone is at every single moment. And that is rare, I feel, for a lot of action movies today where it's just the, the CGI blur. And I think that's what often why people sort of tap out is because they just don't know what's going on. Mm. Yep. Um, Aidan Powley, age 12, has sent us an email about it. He says, I really enjoyed Mission Impossible. I felt it balanced emotional power with epic action. Its plot was simple, but I felt it was solid, fun action movie, perfect for summer. 
brilliant. Perfect. Aidan Pyle, you're 12 when you're writing reviews like that. You're amazing. Thank you very much indeed for that. It's Clarice Lockery and Edith Bowman in for Simon and Mark on Five Live. Atman and the Wasp is out this week and we'll find out what Clarice and some of you think of it shortly. But first, uh, I had the pleasure of chatting to two of the film's stars, Evangeline Lilly and Paul Rudd. That conversation follows this clip. Is that my desk? Yeah. What? Why do I have such a small desk? Well, because you weren't there when we were choosing desks. You snooze, you lose. Well, I was under house arrest. Yeah. You know what? This isn't even a desk. This is garbage. You found this outside amongst garbage. I got it at a rummage sale. So you save money on my desk? Guys! Hope, please. We need to focus, all right? We got to find that lab already. Jeez. That was a clip from Ant-Man and the Wasp. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome the stars of the film, Evangeline Lilly and Paul Rudd. Welcome. Thanks for being here, guys. Thank Thanks you. For having us. Can I say massive congratulations on the film? Because I, I absolutely loved it. There's a real warmth to it. There's real humour to it. And yeah, it was a joy to watch. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you very much. Glad that you felt that way. I would like to hear from you guys just to kind of set up the film for our listeners. We had to deal with the events of Civil War because... Uh, we hadn't really checked in with either one of our characters since then. And when we start, I'm under house arrest because for those that aren't familiar, in Civil War, I went away to fight with a bunch of Avengers and I took the Ant-Man suit. I didn't tell Hank Pym or Hope and I went on my own. I got in trouble. I got caught. And so they're not very pleased with me. We're not talking. And not I'm, pleased at all. <laughs> and I'm in, I've got a couple days left of house arrest and I am just wanting to be a dad. I want to go the straight and narrow. I'm about to start my own business with Michael Pena's character, Luis, and our other cohorts. And uh, I think I'm kind of done with this business. Uh, Hope, take it away. (laughs) (laughs) In the meantime, Hope and Hank are now uh, being hunted by the FBI because of the Sokovia Accords. The FBI want to secure their tech under the new laws, and they're on the run, they're on the lam, which adds only fuel to their frustrations with Scott. And on the lam, because, of course, in Ant-Man, the first Ant-Man film, Scott Lang goes into the quantum realm and manages to somehow come back. (laughs) A seed has been planted that maybe it's possible that Janet Van Dyne, Hope's mother and Hank's wife, who was lost to the quantum realm when Hope was eight years old, might still be there and might be able to be found and might be able to be brought back. And that has been their sole and solitary focus for two years. Family is really at the heart of everyone's story, really, in the film. And it's told with such heart and humour, I think, as well. Um, I really want to take my kids to see I've got a 10-year-old and a 5-year-old boy. My one slight concern is that my 5-year-old is a hoarder. And if I take him to see it, we are going to have to keep every cardboard box for the next two years. Because that is the best cardboard slide I have ever seen. <laughs> that was my big fear with taking my own kids to the. I have an eight year old daughter, and uh, we start the film, and because I'm under house arrest, I have to entertain my daughter in the film. And uh, we built this very elaborate maze with a slide, and it, it is incredible. And it was all practical. We were really sliding down staircases, and. Uh, Abby, the girl who was playing my daughter, uh, just wanted to film those scenes over and over again. <laughs> Deliberately making yeah, mistakes. Yeah, oh, it, so yeah, yeah. Let's go again. Let's go again. It, it really was fun. When you were involved in writing the script, did you talk to Evangeline when you were in that process in terms of talking about the characters and you know how they developed in this? Film yeah. At all. yeah, I think as we got closer and over time, we had the shell of this idea earlier on and then started building. We, I think 
with Peyton Reed, the director, Stephen Broussard, the producer, these two other guys, Eric Summers and Chris McKenna, who did a lot of the writing, and Kevin Feige, of course. We, we started early on thinking what the story might be and mm-hmm. settled in on that. But as we got closer, no, Evangeline is really smart and really good and knows her character better than anybody. So we wanted her input. And I, I don't know, what do you think? I mean, we all kind of worked on it collaboratively, I think. While we certainly, were shooting. Certainly as we got closer. There were a lot of discussions. And while we shoot, I mean, we were also writing. We don't have a script and then start filming and it's locked and sealed. We just don't change it. It's not like that at all. We're always coming up with new ideas or rewriting dialogue or changing things and trying new things while filming. So uh, everyone has a, a say. Is there a real freedom on set and when you're filming for certain characters to riff and improvise? I mean, there's two particular that for me when you watch it just kind of like Michael Pena. I mean, I could watch him for hours. I think he's fantastic. And there's a couple of scenes where you just feel like, you know, it's it's him. He's on a roll and he's yeah, he's kind of going for it. Well, a lot of it is written, but we also want to leave room, certainly with Michael. I mean, he's so funny. But yeah. it, I think Peyton, yeah, Peyton has, uh, I think depending on the character and what they're doing, Peyton has very clear ideas of what it is that he wants. I think that sometimes we'll uh, you know, improvise or, or change things around. But I think a lot of it is written too. So yeah. Paul always has ideas. He always has ideas. He's always thinking. He never stops thinking in a scene. You can just see the wheels turning all the time. It's, like, it, it might, and the wheel is, what's my line? I'm just going to make, a, I'll just yeah, make one right. up. I don't remember it. Yeah, right. <laughs> and also the physicality of some of the comedy and things as well is just, it's brilliant. Like in the scene, I don't want to give anything away, but there's a scene where Scott isn't himself, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And it's so, I don't know how you managed to kind of keep a straight face or get a take that was. I didn't. Okay. I blew it all the time. <laughs> Well, I, I will. Do, I will. Yeah. yeah. Let's just say that there's a moment where it's almost as if another character is speaking through me. Yeah. Uh, nice. <laughs> like I, uh, I almost know what another character might say in a certain situation, and so we kept referring to it as the "all of me" scene, uh, <laughs> referencing the Steve Martin, Lily Tomlin film from the nice. 80s and uh, going into it knowing it was a big swing, and if it works, then great, and if it doesn't, well. Then what do we do? We are <laughs> but uh, but it was a very funny and odd scene to shoot. I think we were all amazed at how well it turned out. It did feel weird doing it. It felt very but bizarre. But it, it works because of you, and it works because of Michael. Honestly, I mean, I really believe that. You to need be those true. two sides of it, don't you? you totally. Need, yeah, you need the um, the reality and the emotional truth of the situation to yeah. be kind of the thing that carries it. Yeah, it's so great to have a, another brilliant female superhero character out there and. Thank you for bringing her to life so brilliantly as well. Um, Thank you. Did you find out about the equal billing by email? Is that right? Yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> I think it was a sweet way to know, to find out. They they just gave sent me a cheeky email, and I didn't really say anything other than there was a picture of the title card. And because nothing, no meal was made out of the sort of roll up to like guess what? Like here, look at this. For a minute, it didn't even occur to me there was anything unique or special. I was just like, oh, okay, cool. There's our title card. Why are they sending me the title card? It took a minute. And then I think it was literally two days later that the penny dropped. I went, oh, my God. Oh, <laughs> like that's why they and – it, and it became, you know, a moment. And then I was very honored and very excited. And at the time, I still didn't know 
that um, Marvel had made 20 films without putting a female superhero in the title. So I don't think, although I was excited, I don't think I quite knew the extent to which that was kind of a big deal and a big moment. And then since I've been doing press, people have asked me about it so, so much. Yeah. And um, it's really um, become apparent to me just how lucky I am to be in this role and in this movie and in this moment. You know, there's there's so much on the script and stuff, but, you know, so much of you is behind bringing her to life and how she moves and how she reacts and stuff on screen and the preparation for that was that fun side of it as well it's particularly going from the first film to this as well because there's a change there as well it was the most challenging side of the preparation I think people initially you know ask like oh how is it did you have to work out really hard did you have to train really hard and I'm always saying the hardest part actually was marrying the hope from the first film to the hope Mm. in the second film because there was such an enormous emotional shift that had happened through the healing that went on between her and Hank in the first film that I wanted it to be visibly apparent that she was a different person, that she was a new woman, she had grown, she had healed, she was in a better place in her life. And, um, you know, that was specific to Hope. But then for the Wasp, I had very specific ideas of of how I wanted her to come across. And I really, really wanted to honor the original comic books. And in the original comic books, Janet was a fashion designer. The Wasp was a fashion designer. And she would change her costume with her mood. I mean, she was constantly changing them. And she moved in very, very elegant, graceful, feminine ways. And she was also very sexualized, as most of the female superheroes were in the original comic Mm -hmm. books. And I wanted to hang on to all of that grace and elegance and femininity while also removing the sexualization of the character. And that was a unique challenge to figure that balance out. Peyton Reed is such a fan of women and such a fan of the original comic books that Mm -hmm. he was a fantastic ally and sounding board in figuring out what was the right tone to strike with her. Yeah. And having Michelle Pfeiffer there as well, you know, I remember watching Catwoman and kind of going, yes. Yes. (laughs) Awesome. I know you're nodding your head there as well, Paul. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it was just like, it was a revelation as a, a kind of little girl going, this is a cool chick on camera kicking butt. So having her there as well. She was my icon when I was a little girl. Mm. I was freaking out when they cast (laughs) Michelle for this role because (laughs) she was, I mean, I think as a little girl, you don't know what you're connecting to necessarily. But as an adult woman, I can look back and see, oh, you are connecting to the fact that you, you know, women tend to be told you get to be either powerful and respected and formidable or sexy and beautiful and desirable. And she just owned all of that. She was everything. And as a little girl, you see that and realize, oh, I can be everything. You know, I, can yeah. be, I can be all of it. And oh, if I she choose. can, then I can. And, yeah. and she was just everything. She was perfect. And, and I was so, when, when we started, when we did the first Ant-Man and I read the role of Janet Van Dyne, I said to Peyton, if you ever cast that, please make it Michelle Pfeiffer. We, ta- we always talked about, you know, later on, even on the first Ant-Man, we were thinking about if we did another one, what might that story be? And I think we zeroed in on exploring this role even back then. And Michelle Pfeiffer was always the person that we would say, well, in an ideal world, we, <laughs> it would be great if we could find somebody like Michelle Pfeiffer. And, and you know, lo and behold, we made the we movie and we actually got Michelle Pfeiffer. <laughs> wow. so, yeah. Are you thinking about the third one now? There are certain things that inevitably we'll think about or discuss, but not at any length because we just don't know whether or not that's in the cards. You know, Marvel is pretty good at keeping their cards close to their chest. so good at it. Yeah, and so 
I think we're excited at the idea of maybe doing it, but right now we're just focusing on this one coming out mm. and dealing with, with this, and, uh, and we'll see. What's the piece of merch of yourself that's excited you the most? I don't know if it qualifies as merch, but <laughs> we have an amusement park ride that's being built. What? For me, it was honestly a Lego piece. I love that little Lego piece. <laughs> an entire amusement park. That's, yeah. that's incredible. No, Lego is like the coolest merch piece for sure. And then I, for me, then the amusement park <laughs> yes, where I topped totally. it. I was like, okay, wait, this is um, this is crazy. That's like huge up for the rest of your life. What about a Lego amusement park ride? <laughs> yeah. Really yeah. <laughs> it is that thing that we know that you're in the next Avengers film because, well, IMDb says you are. <laughs> and everything online is true. Everyone knows Everyone that. Everyone knows that. But it is that thing where, I mean, I guess you guys are guessing as well in terms of where these films are going and and how it ends. Mm. Like we are, like fans are. Or you're not, you're like that. There's no, some, maybe things, there's some things, well, there were some things that I had to know about based on working on the script for this one. Yeah. Such as Infinity War, I knew what was going to happen. It's pressure. <laughs> know these things <laughs> well you've got kids as well who always ask me by the way my son says what before Ant-Man and the Wasp was coming out he would say so what's it about who's uh, you know what's going to happen and then even with Avengers he said well, what was going to happen I, and, and I said I'm not going to tell you I can't tell you and he would say, I'm not going to tell anybody. He's 13, by the way. Yeah. Oh, oh well, if you're not going to say anything, then all right, I'll tell you. But uh, it's a, it is a weird uh, and stressful position to be in sometimes yeah. to hold on to these government secrets. <laughs> well, so thank you for your time today. And congratulations on the film. Again, great to chat to you. Thanks, it's guys. Been a thank pleasure. you. Uh, Evangeline Lee and Paul Wood talking about Atman and the Wasp. Um, yeah, there was a whole panic when she said that of kind of Paul was kind of looking at her going almost like you shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't have said that about the ride. Yeah, because that is news to I am a big Disneyland person. <laughs> My ears went, wait, what? OK, What's we'll that? book your tickets for 2019 <laughs> for uh, Disneyland Hong Kong, because that's yeah. where it's going to be. OK, I'll pack my bags now. I'm ready. <laughs> right. Tell us what you think of the film. Right. So Ant-Man and the Wasp, very much the soothing balm for everyone recovering from Avengers Infinity War. And it very much feels like Marvel has made the safest move here, knowing that anything following Infinity War was going to be doomed to feel insubstantial. So they've really let Ant-Man and the Wasp lean into what might be the lowest stakes film yet. And the first was already notable for that, for not choosing you know the giant city destroying thing in the sky as the threat. But I think this one very much which earns the title of the caper of the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And so we are catching up with Paul Rudd, Scott Lang, our man of ants, during his two-year house arrest, which was part of a plea deal for breaking the Sokovia Accords when he ran off to fight with the Avengers during Captain America Civil War. But three days before his house arrest is up, the original owner of the suit, Michael Douglas's Hank Pym, and Hope Van Dyne, played by Evangeline Lilly, kidnap him, hoping that he will be the key to rescuing Hope's mother, Janet Van Dyne, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, from somewhere called the Quantum Realm, where she's been stuck since 1987 when a mission went wrong. Very much the tone is pretty consistent with the first one. It has director Peyton Reed returning here, but there is a little bit of a looser 
breezier feel to it. I think he, Peyton Reed, really allowed to lean more into his comedy background. You know, he's directed the likes of Bring It On yeah. and Down With Love, Bring It On, a classic. And I don't know whether that's to do with the fact that on the first one, he was brought in rather last minute to replace Edgar Wright or whether it's just to do with the fact that Marvel directors do seem to be getting more creative freedom or increasing creative freedom with these movies. But I do think we'll be able to look back on this film and say that it was one of the best big studio comedies because it is extremely funny. There are sequences here that feel much more like a Paul Rudd movie than they do like a Marvel film. And he's really allowed to be the lovable goofball that we all expect him to be. There's a montage of him during his house arrest house arrest where he's, you know, doing solo karaoke and crying <laughs> over the fault in our stars. And there's also a whole storyline of him outsmarting the FBI agent assigned to his case, played by Randall Park, who is an actor who I think just has oh. the most incredible comic timing. Yeah. And then there's also his whole sort of pack of sidekicks played by Michael Pena, T.I. and David Dashmalchian, who they have their entire comedic side storylines involving truth serum. And even the action set pieces get to have fun. They're using that Alice in Wonderland style logic of shrinking things down and blowing things up all the time. So Really well done. Yeah, you have like a Pez candy suddenly becomes a weapon. (laughs) And so, you know, it's allowed to, to make it feel a little distinctive in that way. But I think the one... Thing is uh-oh. when uh-oh. <laughs> when the film starts to get serious is where it loses its shine a little bit because I do think this is one of those films where it feels the burden of having to do so much narrative work for the future of the MCU films. And I think it, it's a downside of a lot of Marvel films. And I think here it's also very aware of its place in the universe, in this huge, complicated universe. So it spends so much time explaining the internal logic of the quantum realm and it just ends up in these long rambling science explanations and I feel I felt like walking out of this film every other word I heard was the word quantum it was like oh they make a joke about that as well yeah they Paul Rudd makes a joke about it but I feel like it doesn't I feel like mentioning the problem doesn't absolve you of the problem it just felt like the lines of dialogue were oh let's reboot the quantum charge in the quantum machine and then we can quantize the quantum entanglement to the quantum the level what's your problem with well, science Chloe? that might work <laughs> i don't i yeah maybe i just have a problem with science <laughs> i don't know but i think it becomes a real problem when you get to the motivations of the villain ghost played by hannah john Kamen, who does have specific quantum related reasons to be angry at our heroes And those reasons actually do call into question how much of a villain she really is. But the film is so focused on explaining all the quantum stuff that there's actually not that much room for nuance. You know, it's not like Black Panther when he had so much room to actually explore that villain and his motivations. Is he good? Is he bad? Is it the right choice, the wrong choice? And it's a shame because I think that was a really great performance. And I think another great performance is Evangeline Lilly, who I know she was saying about how important it is to have the first female superhero in the title of a Marvel film, but it doesn't really feel like she co-owns this. It feels still very much to me like an Ant-Man film. She definitely has a beefier role than the last one, but it just still feels like the Ant-Man show. And it is a great, fun show, but it does also feel that burden of being in the MCU. Okay. 
Well, let's hear what our uh, listeners have got to say about it. We've got um, loads, actually. Uh, Dear Sunny Subs, I'm writing to you from the beautiful city of Cape Town in South Africa, where I have had the rare treat of seeing a movie long before you all in the UK. The movie can be summed up in one delightful word joyful. I know this seems an odd description for a film about miniature superheroes battling in interdimensional realms, but that is exactly what Ant-Man and the Wasp has given me. Joy! As a huge Marvel fan, IT engineer him indoors and I wait with bated breath for every new Marvel superhero film and have loved all of them. What sets this film apart is that it embraces the fun and adventure of superhero powers. So many of these films deal in the issues of saving the world or more often universe from certain darkness or destruction. Ant-Man and the Wasp makes us care about the fate of an ant or the movements of a Pez dispenser. It makes the action smaller and somehow increases enjoyment and relatability. What I love about this film is that it builds on the first Ant-Man offering, gives us more time to enjoy these fun characters and explore the implications of their powers. I love seeing all manner of items getting bigger and smaller and seeing how these heroes use everyday objects as well as the awesome skill of everyday ants to pack a serious punch against their foes. Ant-Man and the Wasp gave me everything I wanted and needed, a huge smile and a sense of childlike delight. I cannot rave enough about this film and will rank it with Guardians of the Galaxy 1 and 2 as one of my favourite superhero films of all time. P.S. Stay for the end credit sequence. No matter how full your bladder is or who shuffles past you, totally worth it. Thank you very much, Shay Torda, for that. That's a great email. Um, hello, Substitute Superhero Jules. Last night, me and my best friend went to see Ant-Man and the Wasp in a pleasantly cool Dutch theatre. I would put the previous film high up on my list of favourite superhero movies. So obviously, the sequel had something to live up to. While it did get off to a little bit of a wobbly start, I'm glad to say that after about 10 minutes, the movie got its hook into me and landed me like a fish. Just like its predecessor, Ant and Wasp keeps the stakes rather low and personal, staying far away from the universe-threatening plots of other Marvel movies and leaving plenty of room for hilarious banter, clever visual gags involving objects and people changing sizes. Speaking of which, the special effects are spectacular. Paul Rudd and Evangeline Lilly were great as expected, but it was the Michaels in the cast that impressed me most this time around. Douglas, adding emotional gravitas to the story. Peña, providing the best laughs. All in all, Ant-Man and the Wasp was entertaining and feel-good throughout, and I left the theatre smiling like a young boy, which sometimes is all you really want from a film. Greetings from the Netherlands. Thanks, Mark. Time for one more quick one. Uh, this is from Vince. Dear, no, it's not sad, Edith, it's nature, Crimson Peak, and I'll help you catch him, Clarice. No need to add who that's from. I went to a late night double feature of Ant-Man and Ant-Man and the Wasp on Wednesday night. As a long-time comic book and movie fan, it ticked most, if not all, the boxes. Both films, to me, have a bouncy heist movie feel. And well, let's face it, even though Paul Rudd has been delivering the same basic performance as in Clueless, I fall for it every time. His easy charm and ability to make the corniest lines land is unparalleled. Evangelina Lilly really holds her own in the film, as does Michael Peña. Biggest complaint I have is that they have added one too many funny people of colour with the addition of Randall Park. Um, however, it pu- punches me right in the gut and I wish I, could, wish I could see it again. Thank you so much for that, Vince. It's Clarice and me, Edith, in for Mark and Simon. If you've just joined us, you just missed Evangeline, Lily and Paul Rudd talking about Ant-Man and the Wasp. You've got some more correspondence, which I would like to read, please. Um, thank you, Sam Collins. I thought that Ant-Man and the Wasp was a massive improvement on the original. Director Peyton Reed doubles down on the comedy and family drama while continuing to play with size, 
using the cinematography. While Porwood continues to be uh, great as Scott Lang, the film shines when it comes to Evangeline Lilly's wasp, the kitchen fight sequence, where we see her suited up for the first time is an absolute delight. Yeah, I wanted to mention that. So, you know, we're talking about um, CGI and stuff earlier on with when we are talking about Mission Impossible and stuff. And that this particular scene in the kitchen, I think, is so clever. The way they use the salt pot and mm. vegetables and the knives and stuff. It's Yeah, and she can shrink down like in between punches. Yeah. I think in, as much as we were bigging up the practical stunts, I think when you can do stuff like that, really be imaginative with yeah. use of CGI, that's where... Uh, I'd also like to give a quick mention to newcomers Walter Goggins and Hannah John Kamen who give excellent performances as Sonny Birch and Ghost even though the roles were limited by the fast-paced script but it is Michael Peña's Lewis who steals every scene he's in. I do have some issues and I'll try to describe these without giving spoilers. Uh, while Kamen is great as Ghost you can tell that she was restricted in how she could develop her role. Also there's one character in particular who should have had a bigger presence here and just acts as the film's driving MacGuffin. Uh, these are only small issues and didn't take me out of the film. Overall, Ant-Man and the Wasp is a fast-paced, light-hearted, action-packed marvel, excuse the pun, that will be sure to entertain audiences during the unusual heat wave we're having this summer. If it is possible, would you guys give a shout-out to a university friend of mine who's having also a long-term listener of the show, Matthew. Hello, Matthew. Thank you, Sam Collins, which are Taney from Bridlington, East Yorkshire. Uh, dear Edith... Edith Incredible Hulk and Clarice America. I'm not sure about the Incredible Hulk Aww. reference. Get a better yeah. one than that. All right. <laughs> Earlier this week, my local chain multiplex put on a secret screening, which delightfully turned out to be an early showing of Ant-Man and the Wasp. While it doesn't match up to this year's impressive instalments such as Black Panther and Avengers Infinity War, it doesn't have to. We don't always need to see the world at stake. Sometimes you just want to see the destructive power of a giant Hello Kitty pest dispenser. From the heroes to their adversary, the stakes were more personal and very understandable. The use of shrinking was inventive and well integrated into the scenes, while the comedic timing was spot on. Payne Reed may have started as a replacement director on this franchise but he's turned the series into one of the most underrated in the genre Tinkery Tonk and B-Team Assemble Yes James. I love that everyone's bringing up the Pez it's yeah. not just me I thought it was brilliant Yeah so 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 clever uh, keep them coming in if you have any more thoughts on Ant-Man and the Wasp either on email mail at bbc.co.uk or you can text us on 85058 It's Teen Titans Go! Do you know that I watched the show? <laughs> Can you tell? No, not at all. <laughs> Go on then, tell us about it, so, the film. As you mentioned, it is the big screen adaptation of the Cartoon Network series Teen Titans Go, which itself is a comedy spin-off of the series Teen Titans, which aired in the early 2000s, which all of that is adapting the DC comic superhero team of the same name. Now, some of these heroes were probably familiar, some Will not. We've got Robin, as in Batman Psychic, Beast Boy, Starfire, Cyborg, as in the Cyborg from Justice League, and Raven. And all those characters are voiced by the original cast. What will definitely not be familiar, I think, is how different this feels to the entire rest of the DC production line, especially the cinematic output. But at the same time, this is not just a, a kiddified version of your favourite heroes. I think that's a better descriptor for the short that... Uh, that was screened before the film where it was Batgirl trying to sneak out of a house so she could help her superhero pals. 
But I think this film is much more reflective of the current animation landscape. It's these very simple, clean lines. It's fully 2D, no CGI, which is kind of refreshing. And all the characters have these ultra cute, they're ultra cute giant eyes. And it's kind of similar to shows like Steven Universe, Adventure Time, The Amazing World of Gumball, which some of those might ring a bell, some of those Mm -hmm. might not. Uh, And also, I think it it copies that trend in those shows of having humor that is more self-reflective, more meta humor. And that really gives space for some very smart writing and the ability to really play with genre, which when you're talking about that in the context of superheroes, of course, you're thinking, you know, the Lego Batman movie and Deadpool. And I have to admit, I actually laughed more at this film than I did at Deadpool. And that (laughs) I liked Deadpool fine. I like Deadpool. I just laughed a lot of this because (laughs) it is the absolute unrepentant innocent silliness of the whole film that when they do actually aim a joke at somebody like Stan Lee or Batman v Superman or Deadpool himself it feels so much sharper because there isn't this pressure for every single line to be a withering one-liner sometimes it can just be a fart joke which is good as well (laughs) oh so we've watched that bit of the trailer with the fart gag I mean, I would say 60 times and every time we all still laugh uncontrollably. It's a good one. And also the musical numbers, there's a few of them here, including The Incredible Earworm, which is upbeat inspirational song about life. Which I, I won't sing, but it's great. And I think, you know, they really have the ability to have fun with the premise. It's written by the show creators Michael Jelenic and Aaron Horvath. It's directed by Horvath and Peter Ryder Mikael. And the entire conceit of the film is a joke itself because the Teen Titans are frustrated because every single superhero is getting their own movie except them. Even Alfred, the butler to Batman, (laughs) is getting his own gritty franchise. I saw a poster somewhere in that film for something called Aquamanity, which I don't think is a real character, but Aquamanity. (laughs) And they start to wonder, you know, is having your own movie, is that what makes you a hero? Does it mean that they're not good enough? Maybe it's their lack of an arch nemesis. And so they start hunting down Slade, a voice by Will Arnett, partially because he has such a a great name for saying in a dramatic voice, Slade. Uh, So we have a clip of that. Deadpool? Deadpool? What? I'm not Deadpool. I thought Deadpool was a good guy. Why does everybody think I'm Deadpool? You got them guns. And the swords. Yeah, well, lots of people have guns and swords, okay? Nah, I'm pretty sure you're Deadpool. Look into the camera and say something inappropriate. Oh, I'm not Deadpool. I am the greatest, most feared, most nefarious, most ultimate supervillain the world has ever seen. I am Slade. (laughs) Slade. Which that's a and it's a pretty good joke about Deadpool, which mm. the background to that is that actually Slade was created before Deadpool and Deadpool's actually kind of a copy of Slade. So that's the thing. There are some incredibly obscure DC jokes in there. I mean, there's broader references like this Back to the Future and The Lion King, but and you know, also it's packed with lots of goofy fun jokes for that the kids will love, like the fart jokes. But I And the adults. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And the adults, and the adults. But I I do feel like the adults in the room were just as engaged, laughing just as much as the kids here. And some of the references are incredibly obscure. There's the challenges of the unknown. I've never heard of them, but I think they are real. And the fact that Superman is voiced by Nicolas Cage, which he was going to play Superman in the 1990s in a Tim 
Burton directed so film before that got shelved. I know he finally got to live his dream of voicing Superman. <laughs> I wonder if he wore the suit because he they had a suit made. There's a picture of him in the suit. I wonder if he wore the suit to voice Superman for this. I really hope he did, and someone took a picture of him in it. I feel like. With Nicolas Cage, that would be the most likely (laughs) out of all people that he would be the one to do that. So I do think for um, a film that is expanding on what are 11 minute episodes, it is so impressive how much they managed to pack in here, both, both for adults and kids. And I had a blast. You know that thing Pixar films do where there's so many layers to it that uh, different generations can pull something out of it, but it's different things. Mm. With this, it's you're all laughing at the same thing because they've done it in that way that allows you as an adult to kind of almost leave all your baggage at the door and really enter their world as real childlike. So you're laughing at the same things and for the same reasons as the kids. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, the songs are... Oh. It's very funny, but very silly. Very silly. <laughs> it's what we need. More of that. What we need. Um, we've had a really nice email just in actually from Gavin Graham and Ayer. He says, greetings, most noble substitutes. I'm just back from a most uncharacteristic first showing on opening day during school holidays visit to a cinema. Suspect that the entire audience at my Glasgow screening were drawn in by also being fond of the TV version because the response to the absolutely relentless joke rate was extraordinary. I don't think I've ever been in a happier cinema. The point at which I finally tipped over, having been smiling and giggling consistently anyway, came with the one-hand gag, not as salacious as it sounds, gentle viewers, although there are some gleefully dark moments. I had to drain three quarters of my non-Odian water to try and control the spluttering laughing and coughing fit this glorious cartoon had suddenly reduced me to. Gavin and Graham, thank you so much for that email. It's brilliant. I can see you doing it as well. So good. My husband will forever be known as Mr. Sassy Pants now as well because of an earlier episode of Teen Titans that we've watched. It's so good. So good. Right, let's move on to something completely different, shall we? What are we going to talk about yes, next? Yes, uh, Damascus Cover, which is a political thriller which is unfortunately probably most distinct for the fact it has the last appearance, on-screen appearance, of the late, great John Hurt. Um, sadly, though, it's a very minimal role. He plays the Mossad boss to Jonathan Rhys Myers, Ari Ben Sion, an Israeli spy sent on the mission to extract a chemical weapons expert from Syria using the undercover, using the cover as being a German businessman, just interested in the local carpet trade. So this is by writer-director Daniel Zelik Burke, which also uh, there's also Samantha Newton as the co-writer here. But what I find so peculiar about Damascus cover is that the book it's based on by the same name by uh, Howard Kaplan was written in 1977. And yet the story here has been updated to the end of the Cold War. There's even a Berlin set opening, which actually features the fall of the Berlin Wall. And I'm incredibly perplexed as to why that decision was made outside of maybe just because the 80s are very cinematically on trend at the moment, because... There is this contrast of very specific historical circumstances. There is the Cold War. There is espionage in the Middle East. And also Ari at one point has to sidle up to Nazis hiding out in Syria. But there is no meaningful connection made between any of those things. And it just makes me feel like, why why set it there? What's the point of setting it in such a specific Mm. historical setting? Because otherwise, this film is just filled with so many familiar tropes and 
it is completely generic. It could be set at any time, any place. It could be set in deep space and it wouldn't really make that much difference. Ari is the placid, unflappably cool kind of spy who has a tragic backstory, whether he had a child killed in an accident and then quickly followed by an anguished divorce. And that trauma hardly surfaces, except for the fact that he'll physically wince at the sight or mention of children. But apart from that, there's no... No other emotion there. And with perfect timing, he comes across the perky, radiant American photojournalist played by Olivia Thelby, who he valiantly rescues from danger. Cue romantic subplot. And I would say Olivia Thelby, I think, gives the most energy and the most personality to this whole film, but I still really struggle to see her character as anything more than just a disposable pawn piece for the narrative. And that, I think, can be said for pretty much any female character in this film. The plot is just kind of needlessly meandering. There are sudden turns that the film doesn't actually spend the time to explain. There is some reliable double-crossing, which you always need in a spy film, but the film has been so predictable up to that point that you just know the double-crossing is coming, which kind of takes the fun out of it. And I think the violence, there's brutal, brutal violence here, but not really with any dramatic effect. And I think that's partially because the action isn't really given room to breathe. So it feels very truncated and a bit fumbly. And it all feels very frustrating because I think that initial premise seems so intriguing that it doesn't even begin to meanfully explore it, which is a shame. Wow. Sorry. No, don't, don't <laughs> apologise. Um, anything anything you liked about it? Uh, Olivia Thelby was very, was very good. Yeah. But I did struggle outside of that. It's such a it's shame, shame as well with it being, you know, John Hart's last, yeah. last piece as well. But it's just such, it's such a small, small role. Yeah. It's only two or three scenes maybe. No chance. He's not really I'm given much to, to do. Okay, Damascus cover. Uh, we got some other correspondence that's come in for um, Mission Impossible and Mamma Mia. Uh, thank you to Asif Ahmed from Cam- Camborne in Cambridgeshire. The action in Mission Impossible 6 is unrelenting. For a two and a half hour film, it's extremely brisk and paced like a Disney film where songs have been replaced with action scenes. On the whole, the practical effects and stunt add to what would otherwise be a CGI cluster bomb, taking away from the immersion and suspense director Christopher McQuarrie and crew's take us on. Although the action was well choreographed, I felt that we'd entered an era of one-shot, over-rehearsed fight scenes as per John Wick and felt that this film could have benefited from slightly less quick editing in the fight scenes, which I believe would have helped with the geography of the fight scenes. There are moments of over-exposition which took me out uh, of the movie as well as there being a few too many endings but not to the point that I didn't enjoy the film all in all this is the epitome of summer blockbusters oh yeah, but it's a Disney movie it's weird <laughs> dear Carmel Standins uh, what a rip-roaring rollercoaster ride the new Mission Impossible is Tom Cruise is a lunatic <laughs> But as you rightly said last week, think of the cameraman who had to film his stunts. Skydiving scene is a thing of breathtaking beauty and the men's toilet sequence makes early Bourne films look like a spat on Love Island. This could be one of the best action movies ever made with lots of delightful twists with a well-paced script, relentless sensational action and each rounded character fully involved. My only criticism was the irritating overuse of lens flare, which was all a bit Transformers. 
But hey, Danny Boyle has got a huge job on his hands to better this with Bond 25 because if he doesn't, the Bond franchise could soon become irrelevant. Mark W in Balham. Whoa, that's a threat. Wow. Uh, no pressure. Richard and Parley, I thought it was terrific. The best since Mission Impossible 3 and possibly best ever. The stunts were organic, visceral. Previous incongruous slapstick humour was re- reined in, much like Spectre before it. It played out like Mission Impossible's greatest hits with references to not only previous st- instalments, but apparent nods to other Tom Cruise films, such as Top Gun and Oblivion. There was a scene in it, I can't remember which scene it was, which just made me think, Top Gun. I can't remember which one it was now. The film just exuded confidence, although with blood, tone and language, I would say it is a very tough 12A, Richard in Parley. Right, shall we move on to The Escape, please, Clarice? Yeah, so this is from writer-director Dominic Savage, and this strikes to the heart of a married woman's unhappiness. That woman is Tara, played by Gemma Arterton, who's been so socialised to hide her pain, to hide any symptoms of depression, that she's in tears when her husband, Mark, played by Dominic Cooper, rolls over in bed um, wanting sex, and but all she feels she can do is just turn her head, hoping that he won't see and the reasons for that become clearer why those emotions are trapped when they, they finally start to break the surface and Mark finds her crying alone in the children's bedroom and his only response is to go, oh, are you moody, sulking, where's my girl, where's my happy girl? And when she's not immediately cheered up by that, he goes from accusing her of cheating to trying to guilt her by saying, oh, it's my Saturday, it's one of my only days off and you're crying, which seems like such a monstrous way to react to someone who is clearly very depressed. But I think the nuance of the escape is that Mark isn't painted as a straight monster. He's not painted as a straight villain. He's Mm. very much a representation of this very familiar, ugly part of the world in which we have not been given the language to talk about mental health. And so Tara feels incapable of being able to communicate her emotions beyond just saying, I'm not happy And Mark doesn't have the vocabulary either to respond meaningfully to what she's saying or even to understand what she's going through. And even Tara's mother, it just dismisses it as a phase. And then she'll complain that she should be happy because she has a loving husband and two cars and two kids who go up to school up the road and she's got it made. And there's something so quietly tragic about watching Tara just looking at the other mothers going about their business and in her mind... You know, living happily, uh, living happy, functioning lives that she's incapable of. And so she feels so distanced from her own life and what's expected of her to the point that she tells her husband that she no longer cares that the kids get fed or, or go to school. You know, it's like she's completely shutting down. And so we have a clip of that scene, actually. I love you. I can be a joker because I'm out all day. You have to do the rules for him. You're a great mum. You love him to bits. Hey, that's what you do for kids. You look after them, you bring them up, and they treat you like most of the time. That's what happens. Everyone knows that. Don't care about them. Oi, you don't mean that. You're a mum. That's what mums do. Don't care if they don't finish their dinner. Don't care if they fall oi, over. Oi, 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 don't oi, care. Oi. Don't care if they go to school, if they don't go to school. What are you talking about? Stop it. But I make myself care. I make myself do it. And make myself be funny. All right. And happy. Silly. All right. Like you. I think they hate me. Shut up. I think they can feel what's going on. All right. This has got to stop now. 
And so this film is called The Escape and Tara does yearn to be free of that claustrophobia. She's never meeting new people. She's cycling through the same routines. And there is a small outlet for those desires. She becomes entranced by the lady and the unicorn, which is the set of six medieval tapestries, each representing different senses and different aspects of the self. And there's something metaphorically telling about about that in itself. And so she partially she wants to go on an art course, which her husband kind of scoffs at. But there's also something which which is drawing her to Paris where those tapestries are displayed that lingering little promise of freedom and there's something coldly observational about Laurie Rose's cinematography here the way the camera will just scan the scene or glide over images of scattered toys but my one issue is that that approach also extends somewhat to how Tara is written and there's this frustrating feeling that the film is starting to mirror the attitudes of the characters because as we inch towards the resolution, everything is so conventional and so neat, it feels like it's slightly trying to avoid the true complexities of mental health. And I did walk away feeling a little bit like Gem Arterton, who's so just astoundedly raw in this movie. It's an incredible performance. Mm. I just felt a little bit like maybe she was adding layers to the character that weren't necessarily there in the first place. Well, the script, the script was there, but there was a lot of improvisation that went on, um, particularly between Gemma and, and Dominic. And I thought this, I was blown away by this. It's a story that's never told, you know, that kind of, a woman kind of not been able to cope, basically. And it's quite interesting watching it with, with a man and the response is, oh, has she gone mad? It's like, no, just because she can't cope and she's vocalising that, you know, it doesn't mean that she's kind of gone crazy sort of mm. thing. It's just she's allowed to not be able to cope with things and it's that thing of she's not being heard. And, um, yeah, I think Laurie Rose is one of the most the biggest kind of talents in the UK in terms of cinematography is incredible. And I almost felt like there was parts of it for me that felt like it was like almost like the flip of we need to talk about Kevin without the violence, you know, in terms of just that that kind of painful existence that, that there's no there's no kind of real... Um, no one's listened to you, there's no help for it and no one can hear what you're trying to say. Yeah, it's that complete lack of communication yeah. because the words they're saying are totally. just, just words. They don't almost don't mean anything when they're talking to each other. Yeah, just... even when he's telling her, you know, that she's um, that that he understands what's going on, and that, but then he sort of says stuff to her that he's he doesn't even realise he's saying to her. I think as well, you know, it was interesting what you're saying about him. He's he's not played as a as a villain almost. He's not really played that way, and he's not played as a monster. It's kind of this weird in-between place. Mm. Yeah, I think it's reflecting something very real about how we, yeah, how we treat mental health yeah. in today. There's just, we just don't know how to deal with it. Or, or communicate it on both sides, mm. isn't it? It's yeah. kind of really, but I just think it's such, I was really impressed by this film. I thought it was really great. And Gemma's performance I thought was incredible. Yeah, blew me away. It's just after 25 to 4 and 5 lives. Edith and Clarice in for Mark and Simon. Uh, let's do TV movie of the week. You've been guessing what Clarice will choose. Paul Cooper says Nightcrawler was a phenomenally good film. I'd put it up there with Taxi Driver in terms of impact. Florence Foster Jenkins is excellent, but Nightcrawler is a modern classic. Uh, Chris Moody says, what a strong week, not least because Film 4 are going all in on Studio Ghibli. Grave of the Fireflies, one of the most powerful things I've ever seen. A truly fantastic film, but good Lord, be prepared. Make sure you're ready to watch The Divine Mistreat from Mr Grant and Florence Foster Jenkins afterwards, not forgetting the excellent Howard from Big Bang Theory. It will help you recover. Oh, and The Shining, obviously.
There is so much to choose from. Tobias Landy says Nightcrawler might be the definitive film of the decade, taking on urban loneliness, citizen journalism, the gig economy, and most of all, how news can be manipulated from the inside. Gyllenhaal hasn't been this good since Donnie Darko. Riz Ahmed is superb support as his conscience, and Rennie Russo delivers a career best performance. The film is like the gruesome crimes that Gyllenhaal feeds on, simultaneously ugly and mesmerising. Alex Bullock says Grave of the Fireflies is the late Isho Takahata's masterpiece, Studio Ghibli's most important work, if not its outright best. Clarice's pick will be Nightcrawler, though, a chilling film that grows in stature with each passing year. Uh, Lewis Brooks says, I absolutely love The Beatles, Eight Days a Week, one of my favourite music documentaries of all time. The restored footage and audio of their live performances is really impressive and it gives a great insight into how completely manic The Beatles' live gigs must have been, directed by Ron Howard, of course. Tom Vamos, ah, such a hard choice due to the quality on offer. Love 12 Monkeys when it came out. Who could fault The Shining? However, much as Flo Fiji, as no one is calling it, was an absolute delight. I have to plump for eight days a week. Saw it in real time with the premiere, which had Paul and Ringo chatting away. Really felt part of something special and the nostalgia was palpable, even though I was too young to have been there. I reckon Clarice will go for Nightcrawler. Matt Crocker says, I mean, with a big warning that it's absolutely devastating. Grave of the Firefly, surely. And finally, Edward Morgan. I'd pick 12 Monkeys, but I think Clarice will pick Grave of the Fireflies. The Beatles film is also great. The live footage is amazing. Everyone is just so happy, except for some worried-looking grown-ups. But they always try to spoil everything. What are you going it's, for? Okay, well, The Shining is one of my favourite films just of all time, but I, I don't want to choose it because it's on at 11 at night and that's too late to be watching The Shining and hoping <laughs> to sleep afterwards. So I am, I am going to go... With Nightcrawler, which is also very scary, but slightly earlier at 10 o'clock. But I think it is, there's something so sinister about Nightcrawler and yeah. just the way, what it says about society and our appetite for violence. It, it makes you just come away feeling so uncomfortable yeah. about the world and also about yourself, because it's something I think is slightly inherent to all of us. And it really exposes it. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. You can see it on BBC Two Sunday night at 10 o'clock. Uh, right, let's move on to TV movie of the week. So bad it's bad this week's barrel bottom scrapers are Star Wars Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, Philadelphia Experiment, Dr. Doolittle, Waterworld and Keith Lemon, the film. Andy Bradshaw says, Keith Lemon is hateful and should be tried for crimes against filmmaking. On any other week, it would be the worst it would be the worst beat by far, I think is what you meant. However, Attack of the Clones is so bad, so horrible and so avoidably bad that after the feedback from The Phantom Menace, Lucas had the chance to save the trilogy but instead doubled down with awful casting, awful scripting, creepy dialogue, awful CGI, stupendously stupid plot and an utterly incomprehensible and unrecognisable version of Yoda. Keith Chappell, Keith Lemon shouldn't have made it onto the small screen, let alone the big screen. An insult to all people called Keith. To have their name associated with this tripe. Also, an insult to every lemon. <laughs> Ray Alger says that's a pretty impressive list of terrible films, but it has to be Keith Lemon. Those who commissioned and funded that film should be thoroughly embarrassed. It's an absolute abomination from start to finish. It's right up there with Run for Your Wives as the worst British cinema has inflicted on the world. Thank God for every one of the Keith Lemon films there is uh, an Ama Shanti, Asif Kapadi, or Danny Boyle film that just shows the world that British filmmaking is really good. Mike Everest, I hate sand, it's coarse. And it gets everywhere. Actual dialogue from episode two. I hate it so much. (laughs) 
I hate that line. It upsets me so much. What are you going for then? It's Attack of the Clones because I have such a specific memory of seeing that for the first time because I was the generation this trilogy was made for and I was young enough when Phantom Menace came out that I was kind of... I got into it mm-hmm. because it was bright. Yeah, and, and things the racing and all that. And yeah. I thought Jar Jar was funny. But yeah. then I somehow matured between Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones. <laughs> and I remember going, it was opening night and I was sat right at the front, way too close to the screen. I was sat next to somebody dressed as a stormtrooper. Wow. And I could feel five minutes into the film just the descent of this misery. Because <laughs> oh, no. everyone was so hopeful going, okay, this might be fixed and just... Five minutes in, it was like, oh, no, it hasn't been. Oh, man. Okay, I'm not even going to tell you. Really? <laughs> Do you want me to tell you when to avoid it? Okay, avoid ITV2 on Saturday at 10 past five. The weather's going to be lovely. Get outdoors. Uh, let's move on to our review then. Should we do Hearts Beat Loud? Yes, which I wouldn't blame anyone for writing off as just another Sundance movie, which is the festival at which it did premiere. And it does have some of the telltale markings of a Sundance film. Its director, Brett Haley, has a tendency to make films that aren't weighed down very much by internal tension. And there is a little bit of an idealised sheen here. The father-daughter duo at the centre, Frank and Sam, played by Nick Offerman and Kiersey Clemens are constantly complaining about having no money but they live in this beautiful warehouse style apartment in Red Hook, Brooklyn and I don't even want to think about how much the rent costs there. But as much as potentially trope filled as this film might initially seem, I think it really does surpass expectations. This is a small little gem of a film because particularly it's so honest about how messy transitional periods can be that we don't live in Hannah Montana world where your choice is either being a pop star or riding horses on the farm. I'm sorry, that's a reference to a very specific <laughs> film. But, you know, Frank is a record store owner who's having to realise his business is no longer sustainable. Sam is about to leave for college uh, to study medicine, but she's just falling head over heels for this new girl that she's met. Frank's mother's health is declining and she can no longer live independently. And, you know, it is we have those moments where we reach completely frustrating, desperately undesired crossroads in our lives and in which there are no easy answers. Although Frank does become obsessed with the idea that there might be an easy answer when a song uh, that he recorded with his daughter during one of their jam sessions start to, starts to gain traction on Spotify. And we have a clip of them kind of talking about that song. When did you write this? Earlier today. You can't make your heart feel like what? I don't know. Well, try and think about it. You can't make your heart feel like what? Full, I guess. Like, some of it's missing. Speak now, streets are flooded. Hearts loud, we feel it in our blood. And now our hearts beat loud. It's just a bunch of words. I'm not even sure it means anything. Meaning, shmeaning. I want it that way. They want what? What way? Doesn't doesn't matter. Hits Wait, on. Wait, I'm sorry. Are you bringing up the Backstreet Boys in reference to my lyrics? All due respect, it's actually a pretty good song. Mm. Oh come on! How did you get to be such a music snob? I wonder. This is a mood piece. It just has to have a feeling. This has feeling. It is a pretty good song. Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> I know the dance. Okay. No, don't. Let's okay. move on. Move on. Um, that, <laughs> that idealized sheen 
is a little bit more than skin deep, I would say. You know, despite the fact that they do clash in this film, the relationship between Frank and Sam is so healthy and so sweet and so pure. They actually talk to each other, which is something of a miracle. And there's also that irony that Frank is really pushing Sam to give up on med school so that they can play in a band together, which is pretty much the opposite of everyone else's experience during childhood, which is your creative ambitions are pointless. Get a real job. (laughs) And I think it really relishes in that, you know, power of music as a means to communicate message. Um, For example, there's such a sense of harmony when they play together and that culminates in a scene where Sam feels like she can't communicate how she feels about her relationship with her girlfriend. So she tells her dad, it's all in this song that I've written. And I will say that idealism is offset, though, by how naturalistic the delivery is, the way that people interact, the fact that they give each other cheesy advice like, oh, we don't always get to do what we love, so we got to love what we do. You know, it's the kind of advice that people give each other. And the music that they play, written by Keegan DeWitt, feels real. It feels Mm. like music those characters could have written. And all that naturalistic delivery is so bolstered by this incredible cast. You have Nick Offerman, Kirstie Clemens, Sasha Lane, who is so wonderful in American American Honey. Honey. She's an incredible actress. Tony Collette, the Tony Collette, Ted Danson, Blythe Danner. And I think Nick Offerman, even when he was in Parks and Recreation, which is one of my favourite shows, um, that when he does have these emotional scenes Mm. the way that those emotions have to like literally crack through that thick level of deadpan it's so effective and it is so moving and I think Kiersey Clemens as well imbues her character with this sense of quiet maturity that really gives their relationship an emotional quality you know they talk to each other like adults which again it's idealized it's a form of escapism the world that Brett Haley has created is like our own but through Rose, uh, rose-tinted lens. It's our world, but kinder. It's our world, but more supportive. But I think to see such difficult emotions through that particular yeah. lens, there's something cathartic about it, and there's something so cathartic about this film. It made me, um, it reminded me of how I felt after I watched Juno. Yeah, I um, think that's a great yeah comparison. Um, and I think that you know I've got some friends who are American who've got teenage kids, and that's how they talk to their kids. It's it's you know it's. It's very not British. It's a very American thing of that, like that line that you quoted from the film. So they, they do say stuff like that. I just thought this was such a great, I don't know, I felt it felt, it felt like you were almost watching a kind of docu-soap type thing because it did feel real. And I think so much of that is through the performances and like you say, the chemistry between them and this brilliant relationship between father and daughter and the honesty that's there as well and how they talk to each other. It was a bit of a bit of a revelation I thought in terms of the subject matter and how it was dealt with yeah and you just come away from it feeling so hopeful which is I always think one of the best emotions to come away from a film with I came away thinking I want to be a parent like that that's how I kind of came away from it yeah so I'm going to the Nick Offerman school of parenting I think from now on Uh, we got a couple of Mamma Mia emails which we'll uh, get through uh, now if that's all right. Christina from Oslo on holiday in the UK. Greetings from a member of the Norwegian Church of Wittertainment. I wasn't a fan of the original Mamma Mia movie so I wasn't thrilled when my 12-year-old daughter and 7-year-old insisted on seeing the new one. After listening to Mark's review, I agreed to go. I found the first half of the film fairly bleak, as others have mentioned, although the songs fit the tone. Things did lighten up eventually, but it wasn't the frothy confection I had heard about. However, as a mother, 
It touched a chord with me. And normally, stone-hearted me ended up in tears, actual floods of tears, particularly when my boy declared, I'm going to cry now. I put him on my lap and the two of us cuddled and cried through the moving end of the film. This film had stayed with me since. I was surprised by its depth and I suspect I will need to watch it again. Thank you, Christina. Uh, I had to write to tell you about my trip to see Mamma Mia 2 this week with my mum. I wasn't the biggest fan of MM the original, so was extremely surprised to be delighted by the sequel. It's a sumptuous feast for the senses. More than passing the six laugh test, top tip, don't leave before the end of the credits and making the tears cascade uncontrollably on a number of occasions. Lily James's portrayal of a young Donna is wonderful and I was rooting for her through her adventures into the unknown, heartbreak and pivotal life moments. What made me smile even more at the end of the film was when I asked my mum what she thought. She replied that she loved it but couldn't understand how Lily James's character fit into the story. Oh! Even with no comprehension as to what was going on throughout the entire film, Mum still thought it was brilliant. And so that says something. Thank you, Alex D, for that correspondence. To be fair, it's not massively clear. It's the, I guess it's the overall sort of the giveaway. She's Donna. It's there. You're like... Okay, I was, I was trying to be nice. <laughs> I take it back. Sorry, I wasn't. <laughs> she is a fool. <laughs> take her back again for a second view and why not? Why not? Uh, right, should we get on to a Sicilian ghost story? Yes, so Sicilian Ghost Story is the second film by writer-director duo Fabio Grassadonia and Antonio Piazza. Their first was 2013 Salvo, and both of these films actually premiered at the Critics' Week at the Cannes Film Festival, which is uh, specialising for new talents or less established talents. And both of their films also deal with the Italian mafia. This one is based on real-life events during the 1990s in Sicily when 12-year-old Giuseppe Di Matteo was kidnapped... Uh, by the mafia in hopes of silencing his informant father and was held captive for 779 days. And that is such a dark, dark yeah. reality. But I think to this film, what this film does is it communicates in a language that Giuseppe might himself be able to understand. This could easily have been a somber meditation on the brutal reality of how the mafia protects itself. But instead, it's fictionalized partially through his eyes, but mainly through the eyes of Luna, played by Julia Jedlikowska, who is the love-struck classmate of his, determined to find out the truth about his disappearance. And the wonder... Sort of the world and the bond between Luna and Giuseppe is expressed in this fairy tale language. It's a fairy tale world. So he no longer is the mafia victim. He's the noble prince in the tower reading her love letter over and over again because it's his only comfort in prison where he is literally kept in chains. And that's really emphasized by the performance by uh, Gaetano Fernandez, who really creates this very ethereal, poetic figure. There's mm. this repeated image of the butterfly landing on his hand, which is... You know, it's about his connection to nature and his desire for freedom. And she is very much the Red Riding Hood, the determined Red Riding Hood style character. She actually has a red hooded coat. And at one point she has to defeat a vicious hound. And again, that's really emphasized by this incredible performance by Julia Jelikowska. 
And it almost provides them with a second plane or a second channel for their, this romance to blossom, even when it's being silenced by such a cruel reality. Mm. And I think it's wonderfully evoked by the cinematographer uh, Luca Bagazzi, who uh, manages to find these very sunny, idyllic ways to frame their time together, but also uses low-angle shots and distorted lens to create a dreamscape for Luna to drift to be, drift through, because... There are dream sequences in this, but the transition towards them is so negligible that it only really becomes a dream sequence when you stop believing in the reality of it, uh, which is interesting. And I think it's a world that exists so beyond the understanding of adults and Luna's rebelliousness, her increasing alienation comes from this fury because she just doesn't comprehend how every single adult around her can react to Giuseppe's disappearance with such disinterest or scorn. And that's very much an, a fairy tale yeah. kind of attitude. But also it's a fairly pointed commentary on how local communities do have a tendency to turn their gaze away from the actions of the mafia, even if it's a child's life on the line, as was the case in the, in the real life events. And so she and her friend are distributing these flyers saying, Giuseppe has disappeared and what are you doing about it? Mm. And I will say, I think at times the film gives a little too much concession to the sweetness, to the childlike perspective. But I think there's something still so mesmerizing about how you can tell such a dark story through this completely contrasting language. Yeah, I thought there was amazing use of music as well, especially from those kind of dream sequences and how they almost kind of sort of really manipulate the music to bring you back into sort of real life. Really cleverly done. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed it. I mean, enjoyed it's maybe not the words because it's so brutal story, but I, yeah, it was, it's a really good watch. I mm, yeah, there is something, it is enchanting even though it's just, so, yeah, it's yeah, a dark, dark story. <laughs> really dark. Uh, the Apparition. Yes. So The Apparition, or L'Apparition, uh, comes from two huge names in French cinema, director Xavier Giannoli and star Vincent Landon, who won uh, Best Actor at Cannes in 2015 for The Measure of a Man. Here he plays Jacques, a journalist who is sent by the Vatican to investigate the these alleged apparitions of the Virgin Mary, as seen by the 16-year-old girl Anna, played by Galatea Bellugi, in a small town in the French Alps. The church is naturally suspicious because... Historically, apparitions attract an immense amount of publicity, and that's no different here. Essentially, a tourism industry has erupted around Anna. There are pilgrims traveling from halfway across the globe to visit the site or just to see Anna herself, who now has this kind of celebrity status. And so Jacques comes in as the token rational man. He's the atheist surrounded by this crack team of experts, psychologists, a theologist, and he's very carefully, methodically walking through the procedures set out by the church to verify the sincerity of this claim. Anna herself is repeatedly interrogated and the um, priests who are cultivating her fame, they have their past combed through for any cracks in their piousness or any hints they'd be willing to betray their religion for monetary gain. And there's a lot of money to be made here because Anna's face is being put on banners and candles. There are visitors coming by the coach load and Anna is very much made to, to look the saintly part. She's always looking with her eyes up to God. But at the same time, she's very clearly uncomfortable and almost bewildered by seeing her experiences so commercialized, being interviewed for her own website, having to choose photos for the commemorative program. It seems like she'd much rather just work with the nuns in the convent. And so this sets up a real dilemma for Jacques because as an atheist, he's having to face 
this incredibly hypocritical, exploitative form of religion. But that's, at the same time, can you really look this teenage girl's in the, girl in the eyes and accuse her of lying? And also, what seems like kind of a procedural investigation complicates a little bit uh, with what Jacques has only recently suffered. And what I found so intriguing about the apparition is that so much of this story is told through these very subtle visual clues. And so the film opens on him setting down a bloodstained camera and that it cuts to him boarding a military plane with a single coffin. And so even before a single word has been spoken, you understand what's happened. And that's that his colleague was killed in front of his eyes. So he's carrying the burden of PTSD and also this painful ringing in his ear because, ear because of the proximity to the explosion. Mm. And Vincent Landon just gives this absolutely weary, anguished performance. And that guilt becomes a phantom hanging over the investigation. And his path to rationality starts to waver and he's searching for, you know, objective truth becomes more and more desperate. So I was I was very much mesmerised by that. Yeah, mesmerised is exactly what yeah. I was going to use. I, I really, yeah. She was great as well, the young girl in it. I thought she was fantastic. This has been a Something Else production for BBC Five Live, Clarice Movie of the Week. It hearts beats loud. All right, thanks for listening. Sanjeev Bhaskar, Robbie Collin will be here next Friday. Two special uh, guests, Denzel Washington, talking about the equaliser. Two, uh, that's one guest actually. Next on Five Live, it's Drive with Callum and Tony. You know what you need. You need an upbeat, inspirational song about life. Are you feeling down? Like you just can't do it today. I can see your frown. But it's all gonna be okay So believe in yourself There's no giving up The power's inside Yeah, that's what's up If you kick in the pants You need help Cause someone open up your eyes Oh, I can't wait to download the entire soundtrack for Teen Titans Go. I've already watched that clip on YouTube several times. (laughs) Partially because the joke it ends on is very good and also quite dark. (laughs) Uh, There we go from Teen Titans Go. Right, shall we do DVD of the week? Right then, time to recommend something to stay out of the heat and watch on this week's DVD of the week. Contenders include Birdman of Alcatraz, Blockers, Isle of Dogs, Ready Player One and Love, Simon. Tommy Richards on Twitter. I saw Blockers on the plane to Singapore when I was bored and had nothing to do. I was pleasantly surprised and found it funny and a good way to pass the time. It passed the six laugh test. John Cena I thought was better than expected and I'm sure I would enjoy it again for a second viewing. Jason Wilson on Twitter, Birdman of Alcatraz is the only one I've not seen, but I really enjoyed all the others. Blockers was incredibly surprising in just how good it turned out. Claire Rice says Birdman of Alcatraz for classic and love, Simon for new, both about people in a prison of sorts looking for love. 
Nadim uh, Razvi, Isle of Dogs. In a year that has started with a roll of great films, this is in the top three. Matt Waring on Twitter says 100% Isle of Dogs, an absolute delight from start to finish. Closely followed by Love, Simon. Saw it at a secret screening and it completely caught me off guard. Beautifully earnest, warm and touching. Robert Carson, all pretty ace films, but I adored Love, Simon. Funny, charming and beautiful. And Shane Morgan says Love, Simon every time. Jennifer Garner is golden. Still deserved a nom for Juno. Clarice, what are you going to go with? I think Love, Simon, because I feel like that is a film that's really going to stand the test of time because of, I think, just how, if you see how it's been affecting people, you know, it just feels so, so fresh to have that kind of story, even though it is a typical Hollywood story to actually have it, you know, about a gay protagonist having the typical teen romance. It just, it feels like an important milestone. And it's also just a great movie to watch. I think we were doing the show when it came out in cinemas, weren't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah. And there we go. Love, Simon, out on DVD. Right, we've got a couple of Mission Impossible Fallout um, emails that we didn't get to, so I'm going to do them now. Hello, Bechdel Test winners. I finally had some me time on a rowing machine and managed to listen to last week's amazing show. Is that enough sucking up? Yeah. And after watching Mission Impossible Monday, was pleased to hear your review and others agreeing with my thoughts. At one point near the end, I mentally stepped away from the film and took a moment to really consider just how good it was. Usually, this is a response reserved only for bad films, with good ones being considered for their IMDb rating afterwards. But this film just didn't put a foot wrong, even if TC did, which drew an audible gasp from an entire cinema at that scene. What surprised me was the negative reception to the opening titles. I love them. I love title sequences as an editor. They are there purely to be appreciated for what they are. They want you to see them. They are pure moving art. They want you to marvel at how well they're put together and their purpose is to drive giddy excitement by showing what will happen rather than spoil. Five seconds after it was over... I couldn't tell you one memorable shot in it. I was ready for the film. I'm going to adopt this editing style for everything I do from now on. Currently editing a series about farming. This could be interesting. Hope today's show goes well. John Stevenson. I think it did. Yeah. I think the show went, was, was fun, actually. Uh, and then from Steve Sloman, who says, Dear Super Spies, you were right. Fallout was everything you could hope for in a summer blockbuster. My only issue with last week's review was saying it really didn't matter if you had seen the previous film. Fallout is a direct sequel to Rogue Nation. Two of the main characters were introduced in Rogue Nation and the film deals partly with the (coughs) fallout of the relationship super spy Ethan Hunt has with them. If you want to enjoy Fallout at its full potential, by recommendation, watch Rogue Nation first. Cheers. Thanks, Steve. I feel like I would contest that slightly because mm. it's very it is a sequel but also if you'd never seen Rogue Nation it would make I don't think yeah. it would make any difference because they kind of introduce the characters as if they were brand new. Yeah. Uh, and it, you, you set up in the film as well. It, kind of you get enough in the film to kind of remind you of that. Yeah, like Elsa Fowles comes in being like I am from MI6 yeah. and I'm in trouble. <laughs> you go, "Oh, yes, you I remember did that. now." Thank you. <laughs> uh, and our last email comes from Matt Bates. Dear Tracking Edith Walks and an American Critic in London. I wanted to write in to say how proud I am of my not-so-little brother. Last week, he graduated from his PGCE at Sussex University and will now be a qualified teacher sharpening the minds of future generations and imparting on them all of the knowledge of film that he and the Wittertainment have to offer. I suspect that the Chancellor of the University was a fan of the show. The first clue was when welcoming live stream viewers from around the world, he said, Welcome 
Bienvenue, Willkommen, and so on. Wrapping up with Konnichiwa and hello to Jason Isaacs. <laughs> he ended his speech with the words of the late Queen Mother, Tinkety Tonkold Fruit, and down with the Nazis. And I'm told when my brother received his degree and said hello to Jason Isaacs, the Chancellor replied enthusiastically, a fellow Wittertini. So, thank you Sanjeev, I know you'll be listening, for your wonderful speech on kindness, on the need to challenge our own views, on the importance of education and critical thought, and on how our role models can be as close and personal as our magnificent... I'm welling up thinking of this. Our role models can be as close and personal as our magnificent siblings who make us strive to be better people every day. Thank you for your kindness and enthusiasm that you have displayed to all of the graduates of Sussex University during your time as Chancellor. And thank you for demonstrating why you are a role model through the kindness, the challenge and the critical thinking that you apply. Tinkety tonk, old fruits, up with education, kindness and chancellors, down with the Nazis. Hello to Jason Isaacs and goodbye to Jeremy Irons. Matt Bates, grade three trombone, sat near to the second bassoonists. Oh, man. That's so sweet. Feels like a lovely way to finish our yeah. And before season. I start crying. Yeah. <laughs> Sanjeev and Robbie are doing the show next week uh, and they will be joined by Denzel Washington. But as a parting gift from us to them, I want it my way. Yeah, you are my fire, the one desire. Believe when I say I want it that way, but we. Five Lives Checkered Flag podcast for post-race interviews, analysis and reaction. This is the greatest race of the year and this is the greatest crowd and thank you so much for your support. Download the Checkered Flag podcast now. bbc.co.uk slash five live or use the podcast app on your smartphone, tablet or computer. F1 on Five Live.